0: CHAPTER Twelve: THE SELF-CONTAINED GOD A woman in California invited her new neighbor to attend the nearby Presbyterian church, only to meet with an explosive and angry reaction. I hate the churches, and I hate religion, was the gist of the invited woman's reply. She had no use for any church, nor for anything connected with the churches, did not attend, and did not want to attend. And besides, she added, I am Episcopalian. If nothing else, the woman showed a sense of tradition all too common on the current religious scene. People attend churches not in terms of faith and life, but in terms of taste and tradition. As a result, the old forms are largely emptied of meaning. In terms of a theological consistency, the Unitarian Church should command so large a following as to earn for herself the position of the established Church of the United States. In terms of actual constituency, she is insignificant and in sufficiently poor odor so that a recent presidential candidate felt it wisest to join, like his opponent, a Presbyterian church, for a more commendable odor of sanctity. To be a Unitarian involves a break with tradition in terms of conviction, and conviction, whether a Unitarian or a fundamentalist dress, is in poor taste. Traditionalism is prevalent also in ostensibly fundamentalist and orthodox circles. Many adherents of Lutheran and Reformed groups of militant orthodoxy remain in those circles for more reasons of race than theology, and Scandinavian, German, and Dutch ties bind more firmly with some than do creeds. Vantil's exposition of the Reformed faith has therefore been doubly offensive to some, in that it changes not only the validity of their theological profession but also exposes their traditionalism often this traditionalism occurs in quarters which are earnestly and ostensibly faithful, not fully aware of the implications of their own position. The consequences are often most painful here. A distressing instance of this blindness is to be seen in G.C. Berkauer, professor of systematic theology at the Free University of Amsterdam. It comes as a shock to find so distinguished a proponent of the Reformed faith treats so casually the doctrine of the self-contained God. According to Berkauer, it is indeed true that Van Til often paraphrases Barth, but the difficulty arises from the fact that in this paraphrase an image of orthodoxy is being presented, which, as I see, it does not square at all with the reality of orthodoxy. In the paraphrase of Barth's criticism of orthodoxy, it is remarked, among other things, that Barth opposes the idea of orthodoxy which holds to God as God in himself, and as self-contained God a phrase which recurs a good deal in Van Til. After the paraphrase, which on just about all points does not correspond to Barth's own representation, there follows this sentence. For this orthodox scheme, Barth substitutes his idea. The New Modernism, page 161. Thus, for example, Van Til represents Barth as saying that the persons of the Godhead are not three centers of self-consciousness. Page 162 and he then deduces Barth's modalism from this. So, too, he says that Barth clearly rejects the Chalcedon Creed with its notion of the second person of the ontological trinity taking to himself in permanent union without confusion an already existent human nature, page 162. The criticism of Barth, as is evident from the paraphrase in which we often cannot recognize Barth, Rests at bottom on a particular conception of orthodoxy, a conception characterized by the notion of the self contained God. It is hard to understand how any kind of Christian orthodoxy is possible without the concept of the self contained God. The ultimate alternatives are pantheism or polytheism. According to Scripture, God was asked for his name by Moses, Exodus chapter three, verses one through fifteen. Name being equivalent to identification, revelation of his nature, the essence of his being. While Scripture gives many titles to God, it records one name. The titles constitute man's recognition, in terms of a theophany usually, of a particular aspect of his being. The name Yahweh or Jehovah is God's self identification and constitutes his revelation of his nature and being. God declared himself to be, I am that I am or he who is, the self-sufficient, self-contained, and absolutely sovereign and independent God. In declaring himself to be Yahweh, God plainly declared, I do not explain myself, nor can I explain myself except in terms of my own being and self-sufficiency. I am that I am, he who is. Thus the name of God makes clear that he cannot be explained by reference to anything other than himself and his absolute self-sufficiency, and all things else are definable only in terms of their reference to Yahweh, the self-contained God. Not only must we assert that Christian orthodoxy is impossible without the notion of the self-contained God, but that all things are impossible and explicable apart from him. He is the ground not only of orthodoxy, but the creator of all things and their only valid principle of interpretation. When Burkhauer therefore accepts Barth's terminology in a Christian sense and sets aside the notion of the self-contained God, he virtually sets aside Christianity. If I say black is black and white is white, and another insists that black is white and white black, We cannot be said to be in agreement merely because we both speak the same language and deal with colors. Barth's God is not the God of Scripture, nor is concepts of sin and grace those of Christian faith. Nor does a house built without a foundation become a sound structure by the incorporation of sound furnishings. Burkhauer to the contrary. What does Barth say about God? God by himself is not God. He might be something else. Only the God who reveals himself is God. The God who becomes man is God. The truth of religion is its non-historicity. Man himself is the real question, and if the answer is to be found in the question, he must find an answer in himself. He must be the answer. He does not cry for solutions, but for salvation. Not for something human, but for God. For God as a savior from humanity. Man's sin, therefore, is his humanity and yet it is an impossibility. As Berkauer recognizes, for Barth, sin is an ontological impossibility. The struggle against sin is not ethical, therefore, but metaphysical. It has cosmic proportions, and is a struggle between created and non-created being. For Barth, the Almighty is not God but the devil, chaos, evil, power in itself, the unformed chaos which has not yet risen in the scale of being declares Barth, God and power in itself are mutually exclusive. God is the essence of the possible, but power in itself is the essence of the impossible. God is defined in terms of Jesus Christ, and his transcendence and imminence are to be defined in terms of Christ, i.e., in terms of his relation to humanity as the essence of their potentiality. Nor is Barth alone in such thinking, for Paul Tillich, God is being in itself, and the ground of being, not a person, but not less than personal, beyond potentiality and actuality. Thus, God and man are basically correlative to one another. They are but aspects of one reality which is, on the one hand, purely contingent and is, on the other hand, abstract timeless form. For Joseph Harotunian, God is literally neither living nor non-living. The living God is thus a poetic expression. Systematic theology is an impossibility because it limits the freedom of God and is an illusion. Needed rather is reflective theology. Reflective theology is essentially tentative, since it is constantly aware of complexity and contingency in the world of being and becoming. It is devoted to observation, reflection, correlation, definition, correction, and redefinition all of which cannot be done without imagination. Neo-Orthodoxy is thus obviously the child of Kant and Kierkegaard. It is dialectical in nature, and dialectical thinking governs its theology from start to finish, and renders it in effect an anthropology instead. It is of interest in the connection to study the letter of Hans P. Ehrenberg, written to Barth during World War II and tracing the genesis of their common cause. Ehrenberg, Barth's philosophical analogue, close friend not only to Barth and Thurnason, but others of the school, is more plain spoken and open in his thinking. But Kant produced one masterpiece, which was in itself a stupendous achievement. He obliterated the division between subject and object, the two fundamental concepts which, since the days of the Iliadic school, were seen to be at the root of all thought, depriving each of absolute autonomous reality. You know how he did this? By degrading the thing and the ego to the level of noumena, objects only of thought. The thing he called the thing in itself, but disputed its ontological existence, the ego he termed the transcendental unity of apperception, but denied that it possessed any metaphysical reality. He substituted for this a methodological concept, the question of the possibility of experience. In this way, Kant produced a dialectic way of thinking. Dialectic thinking means combining in the same moment two aspects of the same thing. To do this was Kant's achievement. He combined the subjective and the objective aspects and the possibility of experiencing the truth. Thus, the discoverability of true experience was safeguarded. Kant, however, did not go any further than this. The type of thought, which had no longer to bear the burden of the tension between subject and object, that is, post-Kantian thought, lost all self-control. It substantiated the demand for philosophical world dominion. It made a dictator of the autonomy of thought. And authority rests in the absolute self-consciousness, which is consummated in the thinker. In Feech's phrase, the Messiah of speculative thought, the single exception is one, who was too commonplace to be counted among the anti-idealists and precursors of the anti-idealists of today, the materialist, Feuerbach, to whom we owe the immortal phrase, The Union of I and Thou is God. You remember my little edition of his Future of Philosophy, from which this phrase is taken, to which I wrote a short introduction? Of all my publications, this was the only to gain your approval. An entirely new world of thought is implicit in fuhrer sentence. Subject and object as philosophical terms were no longer held in respect. The place of the antithesis between them was taken by a dialectical relationship, which was no more than hypothetical. But what if this dialectical relationship is much more than a phantom, namely a very real thing? What if the object is at the same time a subject A thou, and the subject only the identity because it has been created as an object by the first of all subjects, because its subjectivity depends on his objectivity. And if we cannot speak of the object or thing in its twofold objective subjective aspect before we are able to speak of the we, which includes both I and thou, that is, subject and object together, what then? Can we extend the same kind of thinking to the realm of theology? Yes, if Christ is the thou principle, the objective ground of truth and life, what then is deity itself? The unity in trinity? But the grammatical declension of the personal pronoun I, thou, we? Ehrenberg continues to say that he goes further than Barth by emphasizing the sociological aspect the we supplanting the I in the thou relationship, and in desiring to break the vicious circle and establish the authority of belief within belief itself. That is more than a papal kind of certainty. His clock is fast and Barth's is slow, but the time will come when he will make us one in spirit. Despite the differences existing between various schools of Neo-Orthodoxy, they are basically the same in their existentialist and dialectical origin. Van Til's analysis of Neo-Orthodoxy in his study, The New Modernism, and appraisal of the theology of Barth and Bruner, is the definitive work in its field, often abused and slandered but never answered. Neo-Orthodoxy, in rejecting the self-contained God of Scripture, along with the Scriptures, inevitably tends to make the self-contained or autonomous man supplant the ontological trinity. Salvation becomes an inevitable deliverance from humanity. Sin is metaphysical, not ethical, and means that man is low on the scale of being, and salvation means to be lifted on the scale of being, to be rescued from chaos. Atonement, therefore, is moralistic activity, which results in a metaphysical rise on the scale of being. Salvation is therefore equal to correspondence or participation in being. Election does not pertain to persons, but it is inclusive and impersonal. All men are enveloped in Christ's love or essence. Barth's absolutely other, God is essentially being as such, in the Greek sense, and salvation ultimately is reabsorption. Revelation itself is atonement and is revealed in Christ, in whom the direction of being for man is manifested. For example, Nels F.S. Fair has said the uniqueness of Jesus was in his being the irreversible exception, who yet exemplifies what is most potential in us all and in God's total purpose. As Van Til comments on Fair's implications, thus history is self-atoning. God, through Christ, is in history and sees to it that universal love shall prevail among all men at last. What we have here is historic paganism in Christian guise. The tables have been turned in theological thinking. Historically, the self-contained God as he speaks in Scripture has been the starting point of theology and men's failures have been their lack of consistency in developing the implications of their faith. The Westminster Confession has no chapter on man, but gives much space to God, his decree, and other aspects of his sovereign purpose and will. No chapter is given to man because man, considered biblically, can only be dealt with in relation to God and his decree. Man in himself is never considered, but God in himself is the starting point. In contemporary theology, God is considered only in relation to man. Thinking is made Christological, i.e., man-oriented, and even a Reformed scholar regards it as an aberration to begin with the self-contained God. Neo-Orthodoxy, trying desperately to escape from the subjectivism of its ancestry, falls nevertheless into a position it seeks to avoid, and as only a God under the control of the human consciousness. This failure is not due to lack of effort, and certainly Barth has struggled heroically to overcome this flaw, but without success. The failure is to be found in his inability to accept the creator-creature distinction as fundamental, and thereby to distinguish between created and uncreated being. God's being is uncreated and ultimate, whereas created being is derivative. Consistently biblical thought, by fully accepting the doctrine of creation, has a principle of discontinuity and can affirm a self-contained God. But Barthian thought, unable to take creation seriously, has only a scale of being and a principle of continuity which not even the most desperate attempts to alter can affect. Barth, from within the dialectical tradition, tries to overcome the defect of his inheritance and reach a wholly other God and fails completely, as Van Til demonstrates. Van Til presents that theology of the self-contained God clearly and consistently. But Berkauer apparently does not even consider the point an important one. Yet the problem remains basic all the same. Only on a principle of discontinuity, the doctrine of creation, can faith in the self-contained God be maintained. Barth's principle of continuity can posit differences in being but it cannot bring about discontinuity between God and man, because it does not truly believe in creation. Hence, its concept of sin has an ontological impossibility rather than an ethical rebellion against God. It is easy for men to believe in a God of continuity. Modern scientists, almost without exception, believe not in the God of Scripture, but in a God who is but an extension of the universe or a principle within the universe such a god is convenient to believe in if one is interested in a god who never gets into any man's way but hardly worth anything beyond that because like man he faces a universe of brute factuality in which chance is lord and man's mind the ultimate arbiter of facts and the god of barthianism is equally inadequate barth theology does not give us god in himself or man in himself but christ as the process of interaction between god and man who and what, then, is God? What does Christian orthodoxy mean by speaking of the self-contained and sovereign God? The attributes or properties of God pertinent to our present purpose are those pertaining to His being, His knowledge, and His will, and are His incommunicable attributes. With regard to the being of God, we can speak as Van Til, following Bavink and Burkoff, points out of the independence or aseity of God, His immutability and His unity. First, the independence or asiety of God mean that God is in no sense correlative to or dependent upon anything beside his own being. God is absolute John chapter five verse twenty six acts chapter seventeen verse twenty five He is sufficient unto himself. the name Yahweh very clearly sets forth this attribute of God second. The immutability of God means that naturally God does not and cannot change since there is nothing besides His own eternal being on which He depends. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, James chapter 1 verse 7. Third, the infinity of God is an incommunicable attribute, which, in relation to time, is spoken of as the eternity of God, and, in respect to space, His omnipresence. By the term eternity, we mean that there is no beginning or end or succession of moments in God's consciousness. Psalm chapter ninety verse two second Peter chapter three, verse eight. This conception of eternity is of particular importance in apologetics because it involves the whole question of the meaning of the temporal universe. It involves a definite philosophy of history. by the term omnipresence, we mean that God is neither included in space or absent from it. God is above all space and yet present in every part of it. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 27, Acts chapter 17 verse 27. The fourth attribute is the unity of God within himself, a unity of both singularity and simplicity. The unity of singularity means numerical oneness, i.e. that there is and can be only one God. While the unity of simplicity means that God is in no sense composed of parts or aspects that existed prior to himself. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, John chapter 1, verse 5. The attributes of God are not to be thought of otherwise than as aspects of the one simple original being. The whole is identical with the parts. On the other hand, the attributes of God are not characteristics that God has developed gradually they are fundamental of his being. The parts together form the whole. Of the whole matter, we may say that the unity and the diversity in God are equally basic and mutually dependent upon one another. The importance of this doctrine for apologetics may be seen from the fact that the whole problem of philosophy may be summed up in the question of the relation of unity to diversity. The so-called problem of the one and the many receives a definite answer, from the doctrine of the simplicity of God. Man cannot partake of these incommunicable attributes of God. Man cannot in any sense be the source of his own being. Man cannot in any sense be immutable or eternal or omnipresent or simple. These attributes therefore emphasize the transcendence of God. When we turn to the attributes of God's knowledge, we again find that the question is a basic one. First of all, there is no subconscious in God or any unrealized aspects or potentialities. God knows himself fully and completely and has fully known himself through all eternity in one eternal act of knowledge. There are no hidden depths in the being of God that he has not explored. In the being of God, therefore, possibility is identical with reality and potentiality is identical with actuality. In this respect, the knowledge of God is wholly different from ours. We can never know the full depth of our being. With us, potentiality must always be deeper than actuality. God's knowledge is as incommunicable as is His being. God's knowledge is what it is because His being is what it is. Second, when we deal with God's knowledge of things that exist beside Himself, we see that God's knowledge of the facts precedes these facts. This is not a temporal precedence, but that God knows or interprets the facts before they are facts. It is God's plan, God's comprehensive interpretation of the facts, that makes the facts what they are. Turning to the will of God, we again see the same basic significance for Christian faith. God's being is the only ultimate object of both his knowledge and will. God wills himself in all that he wills, and is the final or highest goal of all that he does. Van Til's phrasing is especially incisive here. Two aspects of God's will may here be distinguished. These aspects correspond to two aspects of God's knowledge. God knows himself and he knows the created universe. So too, God wills himself and he also wills the created universe. When the created universe is not in view at all, it is said that God directly knows and wills himself with all his attributes. But when the created universe is in view, it must still be said that in knowing and willing it, God knows and wills himself. God wills, that is, creates the universe. God wills, that is, by his providence controls the course of development of the created universe and brings it to its climax. Throughout all this, he wills, that is, he seeks his glory. He seeks his glory. He seeks it, and seeking it, sees to it that his purpose in seeking it is accomplished. No creature can detract from his glory. All creatures, willingly or unwillingly, add to his glory. Thus, God wills himself in and through his will with respect to created reality. Whatever God wills with respect to the created universe is a means to what he wills with respect to himself. Summing up what has been said about God's being, knowledge and will, it may be said that God's being is self-sufficient. His knowledge is analytical, and his will is self-referential. In his being, knowledge, and will, God is self-contained. There is nothing correlative to him. He does not depend in his being, knowledge, or will upon the being, knowledge, or will of his own creatures. God is absolute. He is autonomous. For our present purposes, we will not examine Van Til's rewarding comments on the communicable attributes the Trinity, and his observations on Christology. It is sufficient to note that no biblical thinking in any area is possible if we do not begin with the self-contained God. This self-contained God needs no non-being to compare himself to, nor any being to be correlative to. He is, moreover, incomprehensible. The concept of the incomprehensibility of God is involved in the idea of a self-contained God. It means that God is exhaustively comprehensible only to himself and is known to man only to the extent that he chooses to reveal himself. Seemingly, this doctrine limits the knowability of God. Actually, it makes possible valid and certain knowledge of God. If God were not exhaustively comprehensible to himself, he would then not fully know himself. There would be unexpected possibilities in God. And man's knowledge of God would not be certainly true knowledge, because the future would see new self-knowledge coming to light in God and being then revealed to man. Moreover, God would not then be in full control of his being, and accordingly not in full control of created being. He would be struggling to find himself in terms of brute factuality, trying to give meaning and interpretation to what was as yet unknown and uninterpreted. We can know God precisely because He knows Himself. God's revelation of Himself is reliable because His self-knowledge is total. All knowledge becomes possible because God is absolute, autonomous, and self-contained. Because He is the source of knowledge of Himself and the basic principle of interpretation for all creation, we do not need to have an exhaustive knowledge of God to have reliable knowledge, nor do we need to know all created facts to have valid knowledge of the universe. Man cannot comprehend all facts with his knowledge, and he therefore cannot know God or creation exhaustively. It is a brute factuality that he deals with, then he has no reliable knowledge, since unrevealed possibilities still remain. But since God has no unrealized potentialities, and since God has created all things in terms of his plan and decree, our knowledge can be reliable and valid. The incomprehensibility of God is thus the basis of man's knowledge. This concept of God's incomprehensibility must be distinguished from the Barthian notion. The orthodox Christian concept holds to the internal rationality of God, while the Barthian idea of the freedom of God holds to an inner irrationality and unexplored potentiality in God. Because God is incomprehensible, He is apprehensible or knowable to man. Every fact in creation is revelational of Him. Because behind every created fact is the divine decree of the self contained and ontological Trinity. Thus, although God is never and can never be known exhaustively by man, and although creation itself is not and cannot be known exhaustively by man, yet man's knowledge is possible because the incomprehensible and self contained nature of God is the guarantee of valid and reliable knowledge. Also, although man cannot know himself exhaustively, yet he can know himself truly to the measure that he sees himself in terms of God's word and calling. He cannot know anything exhaustively unless he can know God exhaustively. Man's knowledge and God's knowledge coincide at every point in that man is everywhere confronted by what is already fully known and fully interpreted by God and has but one point of reference, God. The point of reference cannot but be the same for man as for God. There is no fact that man meets in any of his investigation where the face of God does not confront him. But God's incomprehensibility is never reduced by man's growing knowledge, nor does he ever gain an identity of content with God and his knowledge, because the mind of man is not and cannot be identical with the mind of God. His is the mind of a creature, and God is the Creator. For the mind of man to comprehend God, it would have to be equal to the mind of God, and for the mind of man to have an identity of content with God would require an identity of mind. The Christian idea of human knowledge as analogical of God's knowledge is therefore the only position in which man, who cannot control or know anything in the ultimate comprehensive sense of the term, can nevertheless be assured that his knowledge is true. To say, therefore, that the human mind can know even one proposition in its minimal significance with the same depth of meaning, with which God knows that proposition is an attack on the creator-creature relationship, and therewith an attack on the heart of Christianity and unless we maintain the incomprehensibility of God as involved in, and correlative to the idea of all controlling power and knowledge of God, we shall fall into the Romanist and Arminian heresy of making the mind of man at some point as ultimate as is the mind of God. Thus we see that the reality of orthodoxy, despite Berkauer, is that there is no orthodoxy apart from the self-contained God. Berkauer insists that often it is impossible to deduce the theology logically and consequently from the particular philosophical assumptions, but theology and philosophy are not so easily abstracted from one another, and Barth's assumptions concerning God are logically and consequentially worked out in all his theology and are not merely philosophical but theological assumptions as well. It is possible when one speaks only English to speak it both incorrectly and illogically, as indeed all people do in varying degrees. But it is not possible suddenly to converse in Hebrew. It is possible when one begins with the self-contained God in his theology to develop that theology illogically and inconsistently in terms of the premise. But it is not possible when the premise of a theology is a God other than the self-contained God, for that theology to reveal God other than negatively by its failure. Theologies are not accidental. They strive to be logical and consequential. Not only is Christian orthodoxy impossible without the self-contained God, but it is also impossible to define any Christian doctrine biblically apart from this premise. When all things are impossible and inexplicable apart from the self-contained God, there is no less true of Christian theology and its formulations. There is no triumph possible in a structure built without a foundation.